0: Hello, bonjour, and tense. I'm Paula Simons. Welcome to Alberta Unbound. In 1872, two bold and adventurous Quebecois brothers, Françoise and Joseph Lamaroux, gave up on their dream of striking gold in British Columbia, they decided instead to move to the banks of the North Saskatchewan River to found one of Alberta's very first francophone agricultural settlements, the town they called Lamaru. Today, their descendant, journalist Mac Lamaru, every bit as bold and adventurous, is making a name for himself, infiltrating and reporting upon white supremacist, QAnon, and other extremist groups in Alberta and across Canada. It's dangerous work, but with courage, insight, and no little degree of empathy, Mac Lamoureux has been able to take readers inside the surreal and frightening world of these fringe movements. Here's our conversation about his deep Alberta roots and his in-depth investigative reporting. I ask a lot of my guests to explain how they got to Alberta, how their families got here, but I think your story is special and different from the ones we've heard before. So tell me about your ancestors, Joseph and Françoise Lamaru, who got here in 1872.
1: So I'm from one of the older families in Alberta, actually, um, French-Canadian family uh, from a little hamlet just outside of Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, which is just north of Edmonton. It still actually has the name Lamereau, Um, And so I grew up on Lamaru Drive. Uh, the two brothers, uh, which... We've sadly become a little Anglicized, uh, which we now refer to as Frank and Joe. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, Traveled from Quebec uh, in the late 1800s and ended up settling in a little valley, um, which we still reside in, which is actually where I grew up. Um, And they created a little farming community. They created a ferry that would bring people across to what was created, the Fort on the River Saskatchewan. Uh, by the RCMP, which then was called Fort Saskatchewan. And around them, Edmonton grew, and around them, Fort Saskatchewan grew, um, And while they kind of remained this little farming hamlet. i That's where I grew up. Uh, I grew up next to several of my uncles. My neighbors went, uh, my family, my Uncle Art, my Uncle Jerry, and then across the field with my Uncle John, and then next to my Uncle John with my mamere And it was... A really interesting way to grow up, I would say, a pretty unique way.
0: <laughs> it's, it's like a it's like a throwback. I mean, not very many settler mm-hmm. families have roots that go back to the 1870s, and not many French Canadian families have stayed that much in touch with their roots and where they originally mm-hmm. settled. So, how important was all that family history and that French language culture when you were growing up? Do people in your family still speak French? As a first language, or has it kind of become lost over the years?
1: It's become lost a a little bit over the years. Sadly, uh, I I don't really hear my dad speak it too much, even though it was his first language, Uh, other than just like picking up little insults that we can hear and be like, oh, why is he calling me a grand cachon?" And I'll be like, oh, you, you. I don't speak it other than, you know, just hearing my dad's insults. But the family history, which was pretty important, Every year I go up to the family cemetery where we have buried like grave sites that go back to 1860s, um, or not 1860s, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, we still have the church that I believe is a historical society. Just being in the area was kind of a really big connection to the history, okay. I would say. We have a book written on the family, which is sadly in French, which I haven't been able to read. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm I'm incredibly proud to be where I'm from. Uh, sadly, I'm not there anymore, but I go back as much as I can, and it, it's a big part of who I am and kind. Of, I don't what I do. Yeah,
0: yeah. I because I don't think there are a lot of people who realize that Alberta was a majority francophone province for for much of its early history. It really wasn't until the coming of you know post-Real Rebellion and after the 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 train lines came up to Edmonton. That French ceased to be the dominant language in this region.
1: Well, you even think of like areas like Plamondon and, and Beaumont, which are still—I don't say would say majority uh, Franco-Albertan, but definitely have very, very strong roots within that community, and they still exist. I had a, like a few sad moments where I don't know if you've ever met any like long—I'm sure you have. Doing, especially doing your reporting for so many years before you were a senator, met one of the Alberta Francophones with a very, very strong Alberta Franco accent. Um, And I had like several great uncles and great aunts with that very breathy, it it almost has more of like a honk than the Quebecois accent. And I remember being so sad, uh, like the last time I heard my uncle Gus, the last time I ended up just hearing my uncle Gus say it, and I've never really heard it again. And I always wish I would have maybe taken a, a voice recorder out just to kind of hear like the death of that accent, because that accent's not going to be around anymore. And it was very unique to where we grew up and very unique to that part of our province's history.
0: So no one can doubt your Alberta bona fides. I mean, your roots go deep, 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 deep. You have dedicated much of your recent career to coverage of Alberta political movements that express, I guess, the worst of Alberta's face to the world, and that's been to delve into white supremacist and ultra-nationalist groups that have their roots in this province. I mean, you didn't always do that work. I mean, you and I once, you know, crossed paths in our times at the Edmonton Journal. So, what, what led you to making a specialty of covering these extremist groups in the province?
1: Well, there's kind of several reasons. One was just pure luck. I was looking to do a story and I was just kind of the first one to see that the Soldiers of Odin had set up in Canada. Uh, And this was kind of like my first story in there. Um, And I eventually wound up joining the group and getting all the rules and then like releasing all that and writing a big expose. But another kind of reason is I'm from a community that's very enticed to this way of believing. I'm from a very, very blue collar, very right wing kind of section of Alberta, very, all my friends are in oil and gas, I I grew up around them. And we I've since used the term code switching, uh, which is something that my BIPOC colleagues have taught me, which I can kind of really speak that language. And I can really make myself seem like one of them. And, And I am one of them at the end of the day. But I just have very different political beliefs.
0: Let's let's back up mm-hmm. to the part where you said you joined the soldiers of Odin.
1: Yes, yes. That would be my entry into this beat, I so, would say. So
0: explain to me how I mean, what was that like? Why did you decide that you were going to actually join them? And well, they, how it, and, and what was that experience?
1: Well, I would probably do it very differently these days today, but they wouldn't speak to any journalist. I tried very hard to get them to sit down with me, to to talk to me. I tried most of the pretty typical ways you would go about doing it, most of the ways that I do it these days, and they wouldn't. So I created a fake name based on a guy I used to work with at uh, Liquid Propane Gas out near Redwater, and they let me join very quickly. And then I just wanted to know how big they were, what the rules were, what they were kind of saying behind the scenes, because, again, they wouldn't allow any access to these groups, to uh, journalists, And I felt like this group was had they they had done a a lot of damage in Finland, which if you're not aware of the soldiers Mm -hmm. of Odin, they were an anti-Islam kind of faux biker gang, street patrol gang that would march the streets of Finland. But it was founded by a Finnish man. And when I noticed that they were here, I was worried about it. And I also felt it was a really good thing to cover. And when they wouldn't let me cover it in ways that traditional journalism would allow, I, I decided to join. Um, and ended up meeting, up meeting up with them for a recruitment drive and, and getting a bunch of their documents and releasing it, and now they're not a really big fan of me.
0: I would think. So there is a risk to go undercover like that, and it's not like you're an undercover police officer or CSIS agent no. or RCMP who have backup. I mean, it's you. So what is it like to be to be undercover with a hate group like that? Uh, and a and a hate group with with a history of you know violent rhetoric, if not violent action,
1: it's extremely intense. I only met with them a few times in person, but it's draining. And it and I'm sure a lot of people that you've spoken to that have kind of gotten their fingers into kind of hate groups and stuff like that can say that it's very unpleasant to partake in that online rhetoric uh, in that online conversation that allows you to get into it. Um, I never use like explicit slurs or anything, but you have to really put up with some things that are said in order to gain their trust. And it is scary. You're, you're riding a little bit of an adrenaline rush. I, I had somebody with me. I'm not going to say his name because he actually has a pretty fancy job now, but he was there helping me just kind of being there as backup. Uh, who joined as well, and yeah, it's 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 frightening. It's very intense. It's not something I would do lightly. It's kind of hard to describe. It's it's almost surreal. I, I suppose you would say it's almost like you're acting. Well, you are acting.
0: Yeah. And were you ever worried, either? I guess that you'd get too deeply into character and get sucked into that vortex, or that people, you know, acquaintances of yours would see your digital footprint even under a fake name and, and think that you'd gone over to that dark side. I don't think
1: I've necessarily worried too much about myself falling into it because I've been pretty hyper-focused on getting the story out and on doing the work. My my online footprint, my social media, it's just completely destroyed. Um, I think once you get into this, you just have to realize that's going to happen and you're never going to really have a kind of normal online a normal relationship with the internet ever again. And in terms of like being worried and stuff, like most people don't even know what city I live in. I don't post photos that can identify anywhere close to where I live. And I have to take a lot of steps in terms of preparation in that. And I was just pretty open with my family about like what I was doing. I'm worried for them uh, as well.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm I sure they, I'm sure they were test. thrilled. I mean, as a mother, yeah. I'm like, mm, that, would, that, would not yeah. be, that would not be a path I would want for my kid. So I guess that's 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 the question we need to get to next is, you know, what did you learn? Who are the people who are joining this group? And I've always wondered, like, how dangerous are they versus are they cause playing? You know, are they, are they playing, you know, dress up white supremacists? And how worried should I be? That's the mm-hmm. question.
1: The, a lot of these groups are the way that I say it with like my reporters that I cover it. Uh, and we kind of have a saying, which is uh, they're not dangerous until they are. Um, they're LARPing until they're suddenly not. And it's usually not necessarily the group in general that you need to watch out for, but one or two members within the group that is going to be pushed to do a pretty serious action. Um, for example, when I met uh, the soldiers of voden at a bar, I wasn't necessarily worried about them kind of, you know, kicking my ass, uh, which they probably would have. And that would have been fine. I mean, like, you know, I'm all burden I've been beat up before, but... I was worried about one of the other kind of new recruits who I knew had a knife on him and was acting really, really, for lack of a better term, squirrely, almost like he was tweaking. And I was worried that guy was going to try and impress the group and do something I really couldn't come back from. And it's not necessarily those people you need to watch out for in every group, but it's that this group, these kind of groups can... Bring people further towards violence, and you need to be very cognizant of that. I tell people they don't need to be worried in their day to day life, but this is something that like the authorities need to be very cognizant of of all these groups, and they should take them very seriously. But I don't think, actually, Paul, you should probably Please. be a little worried for sure. But the average listener Thanks, of Max. this, but the average listener of this, uh, I, I don't think needs to be too worried in their day to day life.
0: All right, so I mean, from the soldiers of Odin, you then went on to write quite extensively about. I guess they're called the three percent. Is that how you would? Yeah. Say, I mean, because they write it with Roman numerals, but I guess I can count to three, three.
1: percenters or three, three percenters. Per-
0: yeah. 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 So, so who are the three pers, and how are they different than the soldiers of Odin?
1: Yeah. So the three pers are a militia group that actually uh, was founded in the United States shortly after Barack Obama was elected uh they get there they derive their name from the idea that it was three percent of the american population that beat the british so you know three percent of the american population to take it back which is very albertan that our first kind of anti-islam militia wholesale stole its name from an american mythos and well i guess i kind of hinted at what they are There, they uh they don't really exist anymore But they were an anti-Islam militia that was doing paramilitary-style training um, across the country because they were worried that there was going to be an Islamic invasion. And I spent about five, six months, maybe a bit longer, investigating this group. I didn't join it uh, in person uh, because I knew there were some members of soldiers in there that that would recognize me. Uh, But I joined it online, and then I went and covered a couple rallies that I knew that they would be at. And in doing so, I kind of found that they were kind of making smoke bombs. They were doing this paramilitary style training. They were casing mosques that they were then, yeah, they were then they would go and sit outside of mosques. And then if they were like loading stuff in and loading stuff out at like five or six in the morning, which is when you would kind of do all the grunt work at a local place of worship, uh, they would believe they were bringing in ammunitions and stuff like that. And then they would rile each other up. And so I did this big story breaking that they were in the country and they were active for a little while, but then they were declared a terrorist organization by the government, I believe. They were, they were listed as an entity by Public Safety Canada a few years ago. And that's since pretty much kneecapped the group. Um, they're not really active. But the thing you need to be very cognizant about these members of Soldiers of Odin and Three Percenters is that they're incredibly incestuous, and a lot of the members will Join uh, very similar groups, or they'll be like, Okay, well, this one's not working anymore, and then they'll go and rebrand. And so it might look like there's a lot of these groups that have a lot of members, but there is a huge amount of overlap.
0: I hate to play into the stereotypes people have about Alberta because Mm -hmm. I spend, you know, an extraordinary amount of my time in the Senate and in this podcast saying to people, Not everybody in Alberta is a redneck weirdo, not everybody in Alberta. Uh, is a white supremacist, you mm-hmm. know, I hate the national media always highlighting the worst of Alberta. And yet I think I have to ask the question, why did these groups find such fertile soil here in our province that you and I love and and that we know is not, is much more complicated than, than that stereotype would, would reveal?
1: Well, I'm going to start that by defending the redneck weirdos as I am one of them. Um, <laughs> but COVID's not doing us any favors in in regards to that. And and, um, the the recession in Alberta, the the lack of good paying jobs that have really gone away that don't seem to be coming back. I think a lot of people want someone to blame. yeah, And and it's even more
0: frustrating now in some ways when the economy had collapsed here, people could think it was temporary. But now that the price of oil is up through the roof and the jobs still haven't come back, I'm sure that's in some ways even more frightening.
1: Yeah, if you don't have a maintenance job at a plant, or one of those kind of cushy jobs that usually have to be like a legacy worker to get, you're not on strong footing in Alberta anymore. And for a lot of people, that has to be very scary. And while I really don't want to completely uh, put this on the economic situation of Alberta, because you don't want to fully put it on one thing or anything like that, I do think that's a uh, driving cause of it. But I think there's a lot of stuff driving it which sadly makes it such a difficult question to answer because it is nuanced and it is extremely complicated but it's also growing so you do want to tackle it
0: so what's the crossover then between i mean these groups the soldiers of odin the three percent some of the other Mm -hmm. smaller ones existed well before COVID and well before the lockdown and well before Mm -hmm. you know the yellow vest convoy folks took to the road but what's the I guess what's the the cross-pollination between some of these more fringe militant groups and the much larger group of people who who went to Ottawa and to coots and to you know mm-hmm. to Windsor and occupied blocked blocked borders occupied the capital and, and I guess who's who's manipulating whom in that scenario
1: that's also a, a another really really tough question the the cross-pollination would be that they both have kind of anti-government beliefs ingrained in there so while certainly you don't want to paint everybody that was involved in say coots or say ottawa with the brush you would paint kind of these kind of more extreme groups um you can look at how comfortable and how freewheeling these groups move about within this larger community. Yeah.
0: Now <laughs> you you've spent years covering these dangerous white supremacist groups that bring together disaffected, alienated people who are looking for, you know, sort of romantic ring quest answers mm-hmm. to their problem. But recently, you've been covering an adjacent, but in some ways radically different kind of cult of personality. And that is around, I mean, do we call her the Q Queen? Romana Didalo. Yeah. So for those, I mean, I've been reading your reporting about her for a long time now, but for those who have not been following this story, who is she? And how has she had this extraordinary rise Mm -hmm. to prominence?
1: So Romana Didalo is a, filipino woman from victoria she's uh what you could probably best describe as a QAnon influencer a quick and fast QAnon explainer explainer for people who aren't aware is that it's this massive big tent conspiracy that started in the united states and now it's worldwide it has millions of people believing in it and the kind of long and short of it is that donald trump with the help of this kind of secretive army is waging a war against the globalist elites that are kind of this pedophilic cabal and it has many many branches and it goes all over the place and one of the tendrils of this extended to victoria and extended to this woman who started to claim that she was the true queen of canada she was put in place by donald trump and she's aiding in this war against the pedophilic cabal yeah i mean to
0: to me like I would have, if you had told me this story 10 years ago, I would have laughed out loud because when I was a journalist, people would sometimes come to me and tell me these things. And I would say, you need medical attention. How on earth did she convince people that she was the queen of Canada and thousands of people?
1: Thousands. So she has has about 50,000 people who follow her on Telegram. Many of those I'm sure are either people like me or uh, bots, but- It's safe to say she has tens of thousands of people online who believe in her. And we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this. She's in the midst of kind of a never ending RV tour of Canada where she's seen, if I put it all together, definitely hundreds of people who have come out to see her across the country. But one of the ways that she was able to kind of build her influence was she came about in the conspiracy when the titular Q, so Q again, to not get too into the reads, was the titular character of this. This conspiracy, and he was this secret agent, more or less, that was posting cryptic messages that were hinting at this war, and was hinting at what was happening, quote unquote, behind the scenes. So this man disappeared shortly after Jan 6, and she stepped into this power vacuum. And unlike many of the other influencers who kind of pretend to be journalists and look at it and be like, okay, here's what I'm seeing, she took a very active role in it. And she said, I'm actually part of this conspiracy. I'm the queen. I'm here to tell you what's really going on. And for a lot of people, she allowed them to further entrench themselves in this conspiracy and in this belief. Although it's very fantastical, they were already in this community, and I don't think a lot of them wanted it to end. And and since then, her kind of rhetoric has evolved to very esoteric places that involve intergalactic federations and the being a member of a different dimension, but it's almost like the boiled frog where a lot of these people were like, it slowly increases over time. Um, And that's where you can get more and more into kind of the fantastical thinking. And again, she's recruiting from pretty disenfranchised people, disenfranchised people. A lot of her followers are um, seniors um, who are on hard times or had extremely rough times through the pandemic. Um, and I should say that her rise occurred almost solely during the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, a lot of these people, um, again, I, I, I hate to, I, I, I would like to preface this by saying I'm not speaking down on anybody. I, I view her followers as victims, and I think they should be treated as such. I, I don't think this is something we should, while well, uh, on its face is very goofy, um, when you kind of take a mic, like a microscope to it, it's nothing but tragedy. But a lot of these people um, were people that uh, didn't have much going on during the pandemic and they turned on YouTube and they turned on Telegram and they got further and further down the rabbit hole. And you know what that can be like, right? Yeah. And that's how I would say her kind of rise occurred, um, stepping into this power vacuum at the perfect time.
0: I don't want to say that I understand what makes somebody join the Soldiers of Odin, but I understand the mindset, I think, of a disaffected person who's feeling economically and socially alienated. The world is changing all around them. They feel like they've lost the culture wars. They feel like Alberta doesn't get respect from the rest of the country. And they find, you know, like minded, embittered people to make a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Romana Didalo. She's obviously not somebody you would think would appeal to a white supremacist given that she's not white, Mm -hmm. she's not male. She doesn't embody that kind of ultra-masculine play acting that these white supremacist groups do. So is she pulling from the same pot of people that that the white supremacist groups do or is she appealing more to people sort of On the left, the people who are sort of more the new age, crunchy granola, fearing big pharma, that kind of end of things? Or is it both together?
1: It's both together for sure. Many of her more diehard followers, though, would be a woman of a senior's age who are very into the wellness community and to new age philosophy. So it's certainly pulling from that angle into this kind of weird kind of far right anti-government world where now they're kind of on this platform shoulder to shoulder with neo-Nazis and it's it's very strange. So
0: but there but there's a but there's a similar mindset to being a, a sovereign citizen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean it's this sense it's this sense that the big state is bad and individualism is good and nobody can tell me what to do. And that, that in some way transcends easy left, right labels. Oh, she,
1: yeah, she steals heavily from the sovereign citizen movement. One of the main things that they started doing was handing out cease and desist letters that were demanding people stop any sort of, Covid nineteen health regulations. I I got, um, I
0: got one of those. I I had yeah. a I had a letter from her sent to my office. At yeah, yeah me too. Last year. Pretty fun, eh? Yeah.
1: Especially if I tell you that at the heart of that, uh if you read too far into it, that's technically a death threat. But moving on from that, that I'm sure when you read that letter, it was full of sovereign citizen mumbo jumbo. Yeah. The way that she's really damaged her community is that she released she releases a series of royal decrees which, you know, range from the age of statutory rape to journalists being sentenced to 30 years for reporting falsely on her. Uh, And these are things that when she says it, her audience starts to believe is true in Canada. And two of her decrees, I believe, Royal Decree 23 and Royal Decree 24... Uh, say that electricity and utilities are now free in Canada and that rent is now free in Canada. So she did this, and then she actually posted instructions on how to remove electricity companies, hydro, your hydro bill, from your online banking, and many of her followers did. And this resulted in many of them building up large debts towards their um, utility companies or their landlords or their banks for their mortgage payments, and now we're starting to see a lot of her followers say that their power is being shut off. Who say that they're going to be evicted? And it's yeah, I, I have seen I've horrible. seen on, on yeah. Twitter
0: screen captures of people saying that they've lost custody of their children. Yeah, you know that their their spouses have left them, and that the courts have awarded custody to the spouse because yep. of of you know the the mother's obsession with this yep. with this cult.
1: What, what, Q, what Romana and, and the QAnon movement in general is doing to families is, is horrible. And it's, it's not a very well-established problem when you talk about this community because it's tearing families apart. It's alienating parents from their children. It's um, ripping apart marriages.
0: We're in a very strange time. My inbox is filled with mail from people who believe a whole toxic stew of mm-hmm. conspiracy theories that they've sort of put together, you know, one from column A and one from column B to mix and match. And politicians, quote unquote mainstream politicians weaponizing this to, you know, for their own political ends, it's really it's really worrisome to me that that this is crossing from the fringe right mm-hmm. into the heart of our political discourse in Alberta and in Ottawa.
1: During times of strife, during times of hardship, I guess I'm sadly disappointed but not surprised whatsoever that it's becoming the norm to dog whistle to these groups and to push stuff without pushing it, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I hate the World Economic Forum, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. It's, it sucks. It, it, it really sucks, especially from like my point of view of being – so deep in these communities that I don't necessarily think the people that are doing this, they might look like they're engaging their base, but the damage this does further down the line is really unpleasant as we just spoke to the fact that if you put any of these things underneath a microscope, you just find tragedy.
0: This has been a disturbing, but really (sighs) important conversation. I want to thank you for these stories, for your empathy and your insight into the the humanity of, of the victims of this kind of conspiratorial thinking. And uh, thank you most of all for finding time to be with me today.
1: Did you ever think uh, eight or nine years ago, this really kind of shy reporter who came up to you to ask advice and could like barely speak to you without trembling uh, would end up being on your podcast?
0: Well, no, and if you'd asked me if I would end up in the Canadian Senate, I would have thought that that <laughs> was, that, that that was as, as ludicrous a belief as any of the ones we've been discussing today. That's a good point, yeah. So, yeah, sometimes you stare into the existential abyss and it's terrifying, and sometimes random chance takes you to very strange places. Yeah, yeah. Glamorous. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Nice to see you, Paula.
0: Great to see you, too. Mac Lamaru is a reporter with Vice, and you can read his work at vice.com. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Senator Paula Simons. If you are a newcomer to the podcast, please explore our back catalog of remarkable conversations with remarkable Albertans. And whether you're a new listener or a longtime fan, please leave us a review or a rating with your podcast provider. We want to share these discussions far and wide. We'll be back next month with another great guest. Thanks for listening. Merci and hi-hi.